Let's seek the Lord again in prayer. Father, we praise you for the promise of your word and for the prospect that is ours. There is no one here, not the youngest among us who will live the longest, who's not almost home. Our lives are vapor. You have taught us that we are simply passing through this world to an eternal conclusion, a place where we will live eternity in the presence of our Savior or separated from Him. I pray that as we look to the Word that we would find here hope and strength for that journey, recognizing that our lives are brief and that there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And I pray, Father, that you will help us as a church to labor, to find under our feet the solid foundation of the promises of your word. And for those who know not Christ, that they'd be drawn to that light. We plead with you to meet with us here by the Spirit of God, teaching us, strengthening us, directing us. That we would be drawn to you is our cry. Meet us here in the word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. People often wear uniforms to distinguish who they are, what they do, or whose side they're on. Think of a police officer, a baseball player, a judge. And then there are suits that equip people to survive environments that they could never otherwise survive. You tag along with a team of divers on Lake Superior. You're watching them on deck as they don wetsuits and oxygen tanks, goggles and foot fins and gloves as they prepare to dive into 50 degree waters to a depth of 100 feet. And you're bundled up in your winter coat and hat and boots and just before plunging in, one of the divers says, hey, why don't you jump in, join us, laughing And you laugh as well. They are well suited for an hour-long dive into the frigid waters. You, dressed as you are, jumping off that boat, you're not going to last for minutes. How long could you live if you attempted a spacewalk with nothing but your swimsuit? Or you sought to dog sled across Antarctica dressed only in flip-flops and a bathrobe. There are natural environments that our bodies simply are not equipped to survive. Water, space, extreme cold. You know, the most significant of all environments is the environment of God's eternal presence. We cannot exist there. As we are. Now, I do mean that sin separates us from God, and I do mean that we must be forgiven of our sins, clothed in Christ's righteousness, united by faith with Jesus in his victory over sin. Amen and amen. But here today, in front of the text before us, our physical bodies are ill equipped to survive the environment of God's presence in eternity. As we stand right here today in our earthly bodies, we can't survive God's presence. 
So as we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's, here's the problem that must be solved at the end of the chapter. First, God created us as body and spirit. That's who we are. He created us as body-spirit beings to live in his presence eternally. But we, humanity, rebelled against God, breaking his law, and the wages of sin is death. So death now separates our immaterial spirits from our physical bodies, which are left behind to decompose. They are not fitted for the environment of God. But Jesus dealt a death blow to death by his resurrection, and and this victory will be finalized when there is not a single physically dead person in the universe. Not one. Spiritually separated from God, yes, but no one dead. Then death will be dead. But our earthly bodies, again, as they are constituted, are not equipped for the environment of God's eternal presence and glory. So Paul takes up that issue here in verses 50 and following of chapter 15. Our future resurrection is, he has argued, reasonable. Just like a grain of corn, a kernel of corn is put into the ground and comes up as something else and yet connected to it. It's reasonable, verses 35 through 44. Our resurrection is certain, verses 45 through 49. But it is also utterly necessary, verses 50 and following. So we take that up and look, first of all, at the great transformation that will take place. Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15 I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood refers to what? To the mortal body fallen in Adam, verse 22. Our flesh and blood bodies are perishable. They are wholly ill-suited to attain God's final eschatological kingdom. The kingdom of God is now, the kingdom of God is consummated ultimately in the future, and we are not fit for that kingdom. Now many Christians have read this verse too casually and have drawn false conclusions from it. They take flesh and blood cannot enter God's presence, okay? I'm flesh and blood, that means that we will live in heaven as disembodied spirits. There are actually books on heaven that are written from this perspective, that everything physical would be tainted, that our lives would be so limited by a physical body that we will not live in eternity with, with bodily presence. This is false teaching. And I think the Apostle Paul would absolutely gag at such a thought. That's, uh, he's been saying exactly the opposite through this entire chapter. So we can't lock in here to verse 50 and just let that decide for us what he's saying. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Said another way, the perishable cannot inherit the per- imperishable. What does that mean? Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Far from a non-bodily existence, the dead will be raised imperishable and changed. Once perishable flesh and blood, those same bodies are resurrected and fundamentally changed to function in the environment of God's presence. I could not begin to tell you how that works. I couldn't begin to tell you how God can speak the universe into existence. He's not going to have a problem bringing bodies back together that have parts all over the universe. But this is what he tells us. That the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. Now in verse 51, Paul speaks there of a mystery. We use the word mystery to describe a hidden truth that we hope to discover. Such as a murder mystery. We don't know who did it. That's the fun of it, to try to figure out who did it. That's a mystery in our use of the word. The Bible uses this word mystery differently. If it might help, think of the rhyming words. Mystery is truth once concealed that is now in time revealed. It was once concealed. No one had any idea this was going to be the case but now has been revealed because of where we are in redemption history. So we think, for instance, of the mystery of Jew and Gentile in one body. Before Jesus Christ, that was unimaginable. God, in fact, himself had had given hints of it, but had not really ultimately declared that and revealed that or how that would work. And so when we think of a mystery, it is truth that's now revealed that was once concealed. What is the truth that God has revealed in the unfolding salvation history in light of the redemption of Christ? This is it. Here's what he's telling us. Jesus, who has come, will return to earth. And when he does, he will transform the bodies of believers who are alive at that time and also resurrect and transform the bodies of of dead believers, those who have died in Christ. We find a fuller statement of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul writes, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, here's the revelation, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who have died in Christ will be raised first. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And at that coming, the dead in Christ will be resurrected. Their bodies called back to constitute a body that we recognize that is yet changed. Then, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. From that time forward in his presence. By the way, we, Paul is not expressing that, he, that Jesus has to come back in his lifetime, but he could say you, and then it would assume that he knew he wouldn't be around for Christ. You can't use you or we, so he just says we, we Christians. There will be some of we, believers in Christ 
who are alive when Christ comes. We will never die. But there will be many, many more who have died in Christ. Now, At that coming of Christ, then there will be a transformation that will take place in a split second or the blink of an eye, we read here, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And a trumpet will sound from heaven. Trumpet blasts in the Bible often announce a major development in God's redemptive plan. They announce often a warning or something that is about to take place. So this trumpet will sound the last reveille, waking the dead to resurrection life. And, insists Paul, this is utterly essential. Here it is again, verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So what he said in verse 50, negatively, we cannot enter into the presence of God. He says now, by way of necessity, we will enter the presence of God. This mortal body will put on immortality. This perishable mortal body is a useless, this is not his point. This perishable body is a useless earth suit. I will discard like so much trash and then I'm going to float about heaven like Casper the friendly ghost. Only some of you know Casper. You'll have to ask around about who Casper is. But that's, that's the picture that many have of heaven. We kind of just float around to this, this person we can kind of see and kind of can't. I mean, you kind of see through them, but you kind of see them. Because the physical is always seen as, as evil and limiting. What God tells us here is you are body and spirit. That is who you are, and you cannot exist any other way than as body and spirit. So to fit the body for the presence of the Lord, there will be this trumpet sound, return of Christ, and a new body that is given to us, a resurrection body, continuity and discontinuity. Our resurrection bodies will be immortal, incorruptible, and what a day that will be. And so he turns from that great transformation to finish out this chapter on resurrection focused on the great triumph. Here is the final crescendo of this symphony, the great triumph, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, Where is your sting? Now Paul does not focus on unbelievers at all in this chapter. That's just not his focus. We do find revelation on that in the book of Revelation chapter 20. And we know that those who are lost will also be resurrected. Again, all death will be gone. No one will be dead. There will be a resurrection of unbelievers. But here the focus is only upon believers. And we, face, we see then the utter elimination of death by the resurrection of Christ's triumph. Revelation 21.4 says this, there shall be no more death. And it, again, if we're not careful, we can read that as no one's ever going to die again. It does mean that. But it means more than that, doesn't it? 
Not just that no one will ever die again, but there will be no more dead people anywhere. Death will be gone. So Paul taunts and sings, Oh death, where is your sting? It's be a less happy picture for some than others, but a scorpion has a stinger. Those things are lethal. They can cause a lot of trouble if you get stung by that scorpion. And just right there at the end of its tail, you see the stinger. Gordon Fee puts this nicely when he says, Death's deadly sting has been detoxicated. Indeed, the stinger itself has been plucked. That's what Jesus did when he rose from the grave. He took the stinger right out of death. Yanked it. Removed it. I mean, that's one hideous creature without that stinger, but it is utterly useless. It is not something to fear. It's the stinger that is the fear. Christ defeated it. That removal is already true, and yet not true in the fullest sense. There is a sense in which the victory has been won, and a sense in which there is yet more to come. But we have this confidence, believer, death will be swallowed up in the victory of Christ's resurrection. It has been, it will ultimately be. So Paul feels at liberty to taunt death in the language of the Old Testament. Death, you have no stinger left in your tail. I am not afraid of you. You can cause no harm whatsoever. You are of no concern to us. I've never thought of this until this week, and I really don't have the answer, but for some reason there's um, particularly a use of this word in, in football. With football players, they're penalized for taunting an opponent. I'm not sure if there's other sports. I suppose there's some sort of similar penalty, but it's a big thing in football. If players stand menacingly over an opponent and they scream derogatory words at them, a ref will throw a yellow flag and penalize that player for taunting. Well, you notice here, there's no yellow flag. Paul is taunting death. Death, where is your stinger? Where is your victory? There's no yellow flag. Paul dances on death's grave. That's what he's doing here. Death is the most evil, bitter enemy of humanity. It is our wicked enemy. And Paul dances on its grave. And all of us then, who've lost loved ones, all of us, all of you especially who have suffered the loss of a mate, a young parent, a best friend, we will one day dance on death's grave when death is gone. That doesn't itself remove all the pain, but it certainly puts it in perspective. Death will not have the final word. Christ will. And he has. The classic poem by John Donne. If you read the whole poem, it's, you're gonna, it's gonna take you weeks to work through. But the beginning and the ending is real clear and beautiful. He says, death, 
be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past, and we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Well, after that grand crescendo, Paul just really can't help himself but to insert a brief theological point. If he were alive today, we'd giggle at him probably. Here you go again. You got, you just, he just thinks so theologically. He just inserts it here. It sounds like it comes out of nowhere, but it's connected to all of his theology. Verse 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin. Without sin, there is no death. Sin is thus the stinger in death's tail. But if Christ defeats death, then he ends sin. And the power of sin is the law. Let's meditate on that for a moment. We know he develops this so much more fully in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5 and verse 13 tells us this, quote, Sin is not counted where there is no law. But the revelation of God's law shines light on sin and becomes an occasion for sin. We can picture this, I think, pretty easily. 18-month-old Sammy. He's seated in a high chair at the dinner table when he discovers the delight the delight of launching a spoonful of applesauce onto the floor. Curse splash. And he giggles at the fun of it. it. This is just great fun. And mom and dad explained to Sammy that he is never to do that again. But when he thinks they're not looking, what does he do? He launches another spoonful of applesauce to the floor. Curse splat once again. Sammy did not know that throwing food was wrong. All a simple matter of physics and fun, as far as he was concerned in that moment. But here's Romans 5.13. Sin is not reckoned where there is no law. So Sammy acted foolishly, but not sinfully. But now the parental law sheds new light. Now the forbidden deed loses the cover of ignorance... And law presents Sammy with a choice. I must obey and not do this thing I really enjoy or I need to reject parental authority and go ahead and do it anyway. What was done with no conviction of conscience earlier in the meal now becomes a sinful act and may even make the forbidden pleasure seem all the more compelling. You've met Sammy. (laughs) Different name, different situation, but you get it, don't you? The law shines light that simply exposes sin and in some sense fuels it. Now this is a quick sideline, I will admit, but it's so connected, a quick sideline. This situation, how do many parents deal with it? They deal with it by proposing to rig the system and they issue no law. So Sammy's 
mom and dad said, you're never going to do that again. This, this is not appropriate behavior. But parents today say, I can rig the system and I'll issue no law. And so my child can't break it. I imagine that parents today do this because they think they're smart and they think they're loving. But in actuality, they do this because they do not have the mind of God. They withhold law, thereby distorting the gospel to their 18-year-old child. And the problem is not going to just fix itself. We need law as much as it hurts us. So that we see our sin. And recognize you can change the action from shooting applesauce. But whatever it is, I can't stop it. I need my sin exposed by the light of the law, and I need the grace of Christ to rescue me. Now, we have to be cautious not to become parental legalists, but to remove law altogether and to say that grace alone will abound is missing the gospel. As I said, that was a sideline. But back to the point, Christ's resurrection victory will end death. It will end sin and the law in one moment of time. And so Paul can celebrate, verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us disobeys God's law. We lie, we steal, we gossip and hate, we harbor pride and resentment and self-pity in our hearts. And ultimately, when we deal with our hearts, we fail to love God with all of our mind, soul, and strength, and we do not love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We break the law of God. The light of God's law shines light on our moral rebellion against him. But for those who have not been rescued from that condition by Jesus Christ, victory over sin and judgment is found only in this victory of Jesus over death. His victory is over sin. His victory is over death. His victory ultimately fulfills the law and removes the need for it. But the important point to recognize is that you cannot save yourself from law-breaking. You cannot do it. You cannot clean up your act and compel God to receive you and fit yourself for his presence. But the good news is what we find in this chapter, particularly announced in the first half, that Jesus paid the full price of sin for all who put their trust in him, that he died for the forgiveness of sins, that he rose from the dead in victory over all of this mess that we're in. And so as a church, we gather to stand for this truth and we long that you would know the joy of saying in your heart, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. And that thanks has been expressed in the songs that we've lifted together here as a congregation this morning. We have said in song, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The victory is not in us, but is a gift of Christ. Plead for it. Reach for it. It is not 
hard to find. Now the way that Paul ends this glorious chapter is also telling. He does not end with theological formulation here, but with life with the Christian life, as he says in verse 58, winding all of this up, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Two practical results should follow the doctrine of resurrection developed in this chapter. The first is a solid standing in life. Second is a future prospect of reward. I have my feet on solid ground. Christ has defeated death. Believers do not live on that earth. They don't live on that foundation. And I live with a future prospect of in eternity and, and of eternal reward. There my focus is toward what is ahead and my feet on the solid ground of Christ's victory. Knowing how this world ends and the next one starts gives us a foundation on which to stand against the winds that blow against our frail frames. The, rex, the resurrection of Jesus, then, is no esoteric doctrine to bone up on for a theology test. It is a reality that grounds our lives in the future. It orients us to what will be and what has been accomplished by Christ. It is a reality, then, that grounds our lives on this foundation, we are to abound in the work of the Lord. This again indicating where this takes us. As we stand on that solid ground, it takes us towards serving Christ, serving his cause. We begin to see our lives here as really brief and really small. But there is an eternal future in Christ's presence. So we sow seeds for that eternity. We give ourselves to the work of the Lord to invest in that eternal future. I think his reference here of abounding in the work of the Lord is a reference to all of the Christian life, but the focus clearly on that specific call of serving the cause of Christ. And I say, if, if your life is just locked into the little story of your life, you are living a very small life. You are not a big person. And your history is not all that important. But lock your life into the grand redemptive victory of Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. And now you're in a big story. And everything that you do in your life, big or small, is locked into that greater work of Christ. And now you live a life of fullness of serving not yourself, not your own pleasure, not simply how to get along in life, but serving the cause of Christ. And we exert such energies in absolute confidence that God will reward every effort in the eternal future that awaits us. We invest resources of money and time and talent in the cause of Christ, knowing that it will meet us there. How foolish to think we make an investment down here and we expect a return on investment. But we serve Christ and it's lost? No, the reward will absolutely overwhelm the investment. 
And the resurrection of Christ teaches us to think that way. So, wow, have we been privileged to work through this chapter. What, what, a, what a tremendous foundation under our feet. The resurrection of Christ is not ancillary. It's not secondary. It is at the heart, the core of everything that we are, believe, and our eternal future. But born-again believer in Christ, ultimately and finally then, everything that you were created to be cannot be fulfilled in this world. There is a deep longing in our bones for another world, a world that works, a world that's not painful, a world that is liberated from the sin that continues to drag us down, a world in God's presence where we were created to live forever. But the problem is here, our bodies are not fit for that environment. Our bodies are not evil. We should give thanks for them and steward them well. Nor are our bodies to be worshipped. They are perishable, weak, temporal, and fading away. But these deteriorating bodies of ours, these bodies that will decompose in the earth, barring the return of Christ for absolutely every one of us, these bodies will be raised to eternal life. And there they will be fitted for God's presence forever. In a fascinating book written by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, He imagines two worlds that mirror hell and heaven. I'll take just a few moments to tell you the brief front of the story, but this fictional work is no attempt to depict what hell and heaven are actually like. That's not his point. But rather he intends to get one thinking about eternity and why we choose heaven or hell. And so in this imaginary world, there are people who choose not to get on a flying bus that takes them for a brief visit to heaven. They didn't even want anything to do with it. There's others that get on that bus. They go to the brief visit to heaven, and they don't like it there. And they go back to their world, to hell. There's others who stay. But when they arrive in heaven for this brief visit to determine whether they want to stay or not, they discover that they're not really physical. They're they're, they're phantom-like. They don't yet have a body, and what they realize is that their bodies are not fit for this environment whatsoever. The protagonist, the main character in in the fictional story, tries to pull up a flower, and he he can't. He's not strong enough. It's, it's too strong. There's a leaf that's there down on the ground, and he can't lift it. It says that he about shatters his heart trying to lift this little leaf. And what is, what is Lewis saying? Oh, one more point that's really fun to see, but as they walk on the grass, it pokes right through their feet like razor blades. They can't run on the grass because it's just too sharp and strong. And what is Lewis up to? He's expressing the weighty glory of heaven. I think he's also expressing this passage. 
We cannot enter eternity as we are. We must be transformed into solid people. Weighty people who can endure the weight of glory in God's presence with eternal joy. Imagine going to a world where nothing yielded. Everything was so hard and sharp that you couldn't function there. Your body is useless in that environment. As useless as jumping off the side of a boat in your coat in Lake Superior or trying to do a spacewalk in a swimsuit. We're not fit for this. You're not, and that's what Lewis is saying here. That we're not fit for eternity with Christ. But we find in this passage that we will one day be solid people. Resurrected, transformed bodies, joined to a purified spirit. Can you imagine it? A spirit that internally is untouched by sin. And it is no question then why Scripture says the Lord will wipe away every tear. No death, no pain, no sin, no need for law. Brothers and sisters, no problem that you ever face in this waking world will ever match Christ's conquest of death in your place. Jesus has solved our greatest need. He will satisfy all others in time. He has yanked the stinger from death. He will yank every heartache, every weakness, every sin, every enemy, every loss from our lives in that glorious future. This reality is the bedrock under our feet. This reality is the motivation to serve him with all of our hearts. No matter what trial or difficulty we face in this world, the biggest has been dealt with already. And we walk in that victory. It does not remove the pain now, but it puts it all in perspective. It is fuel for perseverance in the faith and service to Christ who has saved us for his glory and for our eternal joy. Praise be to God. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so we gather on the Lord's day, and so we sing. Father, how we praise you for your wise and glorious plan. There's a sense in which we look at and say, it's just fantasy. It's so great, we cannot believe it to be true. And yet, as we look at it, and as the Spirit teaches us, and as we continue to consider the Scriptures, we realize it can be no other way. We praise you for Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and is now the first fruits of those who will rise. Our bodies remade like our saviors, as verse 49 says. We don't know all of what that means, but what we saw in him, eating, drinking, talking, living, appearing. 
Lord, we long for that day when we will be fit for eternity. And there, as the illustrations fall short, we will not be in cold waters out of our element. We will not be in space out of our element or in extreme cold, incapable of surviving. We will be in our element for the first time in our lives. And we thank you for the promise that you will fit us for that. One day when we rise or meet the Lord when he comes. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Rescue us from our misery. But keep us, Lord, in the midst of this misery in joy and gladness as we endure for the joy set before us. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.